0: Download the Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm today to get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast. This is a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm, of course, your host, Brad Gray. And this is episode number 28. And on today's show, I'm just so thrilled to share with you my conversation with none other than Tolian Chavijian. Tolian is a writer and speaker and former pastor. You are perhaps familiar with his story. Um, He's primarily known for his book, One Way Love which has heavily impacted and influenced me. Um, He's also um, the former pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church and the former director of the popular online ministry Liberate.org. This was all before his very public moral failing, um, which he will get into and which he will share uh, the details of uh, somewhat. Um, Batolian's fall from grace here is... A really good reminder to us all of the, um, you know, the fragility of human platforms, but also the futility of trusting in ourselves, and I think Tolian articulates that very well in this conversation. His story, I think it serves to preach to me, it's a good uh, sermon to us all, I think, preaching both the unflinching consequences of the law, but also the incalculable nature of God's grace that is adamant about saving sinners and only sinners, because, as we know, sinners are all that there are. I was just so uplifted by this conversation. Um, I've been a longtime friend of Tolian, uh through it all, and um, I was just blessed to be able to sit down with him and just uh, talk about all things grace in the gospel and how God saves sinners and it makes them more like him. Even through the midst of failure, so um, sit back and relax, and just enjoy this conversation with Tolian on on all those things—grace, failure, and and finding freedom in the midst of in the midst of it all. Before we begin today's show, though, I have to remind you that it is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible offers an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, which inspires lifelong discipleship, helping readers make a deeper connection with God's Word. To find out more about the Christian Standard Bible, go to csbible.com. Now, for Tolian Chavidjian. So thanks for joining the Ministry-Minded Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Gray, and I'm very privileged and pleased to have on the show today my good friend Tolian Chavijan. How are you doing,
1: Tolian? I'm doing good, Brad. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, I have been wanting to do this for a very long time, and I think somehow our schedules just finally coincided to where we could do this. So thanks for for making the time for me this morning. Absolutely. Um, For those who are perhaps unfamiliar with who you are and kind of what you're doing now, uh, let's just kind of start by uh, just you introducing yourself in sort of as many or as little words as you feel necessary.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, gosh, uh, that's a big question. I don't know where to start. It, all, it sort of all depends on uh, how much your listeners know about me, so I'm going to assume they know nothing about me. Sure. Um, so I, uh, I am 45 years old. Uh, I am married with uh, three kids of my own, and then I inherited two kids uh, by my second wife, Stacy. We've been married for a year and a half, a little over a year and a half. Um, I was born into Christian royalty. My mother is the oldest daughter of the Reverend Bill. Billy Graham, the evangelist Billy Graham, who just recently passed away. That's my grandfather. Mm. Uh, I was born in the middle of seven children into a loving home. Uh, my mom and dad were amazing parents. Uh, they loved us well. They taught us to take God very seriously, but to never take ourselves too seriously. So there was lots of laughter and fun in our home growing up. <clears throat> I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember when I became a Christian because my parents were so good at discipling us from an early age. Uh, they taught us how to read the Bible and pray. And, um, we had family devotions. We went to good churches, grew up going to, you know, Sunday school and youth groups and, you know, all of that stuff, Christian schools. Uh, they gave all of us kids a very good education at the ripe young age of 16. I, uh, dropped out of high school and got kicked out of my home. That was a sort of a a thing that had developed over a period of a couple of years. I wasn't exactly sure where I fit inside the home. Being the middle of seven children, I wasn't sure if I was the youngest of the older three or the oldest of the younger three and (laughs) uh, didn't really know where I fit. And when you are young and desperate to belong and desperate to fit in and you don't know where you fit inside the home, you make some pretty stupid choices about who you hang out with and the things you do so that you'll fit somewhere outside the home. And all of that culminated at uh, 16 years old when I dropped out of high school, got kicked out of my house. My parents loved me and said, we love you, but if you're going to continue living this way, you can't live this way under our roof. So at that point I was thrilled. I was like, this is great. You know, I'm grew up in South Florida, Fort Lauderdale area, and I'm thinking, wow, now I don't have teachers looking over my shoulders or parents breathing down my neck. I can finally do what I want to do whenever (laughs) I want to do it. And the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, and it was pleasurable for a season, but that season for me came to an end at 21 years old when the hound of heaven tracked me down and magnificently defeated me. And uh, it wasn't one event or one particular crisis. It was just this Culminating sense of there's got to be more to who I am than what this world is telling me. There's got to be more uh, to life than what I'm experiencing. And uh, and I knew because my parents had raised us the way they did. I knew where home was. And so I sort of went back to God. And, um, or God, you know, pulled me back to himself. And, and at that point, my life really turned around. I mean, it went 180 degrees in a different direction. I was dating a girl at the time who I then married. I, uh, immediately went to college. I got married at 22, 21. I got married at 21, started college at 22 um, went to a Christian school in Columbia, South Carolina and graduated three and a half years later with a degree in philosophy. By the time I graduated, I had two little boys and immediately upon graduation went to seminary, went to Reform Theological Seminary in Orlando, hmm. Florida, and uh, was there for three years and graduated with a Master of Divinity degree. And by the time I graduated, my wife was pregnant with child number three. And when I graduated seminary, I immediately went to Knoxville, Tennessee, and served as an associate pastor of a large church up there and was there for two years. Had a wonderful experience there. And two years after I got there, I was invited by a group of people back home in South Florida to come and start a church, which I vehemently resisted for about four or five months. Hmm. And then God made it clear through a series of uh, events And through a handful of people that that's exactly what he wanted us to do. And so uh, at that time, my wife and my two boys and my little girl moved back home to South Florida. Mm-hmm. And I started New City Church in the fall of 2003, actually August of 2003. And uh, God did some amazing things in that church and some amazing things through that church. And that church had grown significantly by the time it was five years old. And it was around that time that uh, a much a much more historic, established church, about 25 minutes away, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, approached me and asked if I would consider being their next pastor. Uh, for those who don't know, That church, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, was uh, founded in 1960 by the late Dr. James Kennedy, D. James Kennedy, uh, who became somewhat of a household name uh, in the 70s and 80s because all of uh, the services at Coral Ridge were broadcast around the world on TV. He was on the radio. He started Mm -hmm. a a very effective evangelistic program back then called Evangelism Explosion. So he was a pretty well-known guy, and the church was a famous church. And so when they approached me... He had died in 2007, and they were looking for a pastor. And when they approached me, I said, I'm honored, I'm humbled, but I'm not interested. The church culture at Coral Ridge was very, very different than the church culture at New City. It was much older, it was much more traditional. uh, And I knew enough to know that this, the statistics are not, in the fa- are not in favor of the person who follows a founding pastor. So <laughs> I wasn't really interested in uh, being the next guy to take over. Um, and they kept coming back to me. And about the third time they came, they suggested that we consider a merger. And that was mm. something that was intriguing to me because – I knew that in order to make it at Coral Ridge, I was going to need a lot of ground support from people who knew me and uh, people who understood what I was doing and what I was saying. Uh, And plus, I just could not imagine any scenario in which I would have left the people that I started New City with to go 20 minutes down the road and pastor another church. (laughs) And so uh, to make a very long story short, uh, in early 2009, Those two churches came together as one new church, and uh, the first probably six to 12 months were absolute misery. Uh, It was a very, very difficult transition. If you merge anything, it's painful. Uh, If you merge Mm. two businesses, if you merge two families, certainly if you merge two churches, there is going to be some serious growing pains uh, and transitional pains, and there was, and there were many times during... That first year that I wanted to throw in the towel. Interestingly, it was during that year that I rediscovered the power of the gospel in some pretty powerful ways, some pretty tangible ways. And that really changed my ministry the books that I was writing and the sermons that I was preaching and the things that I was saying, it really turned and really focused my ministry as a result of that difficult and painful season. So <clears throat> once that season was over, that first you know, difficult, painful transitional year was over, things really took off. Um, I mean, the church grew, it became alive, it was thriving, it really felt like there was a gospel revolution taking place in South Florida through Coral Ridge and the ministry that God had given us there. And uh, I started a ministry called Liberate, which was, it started off as just a conference, uh, but it became much more than that. Uh, It became a well-resourced website, it became a daily radio show, it became a weekly TV show around the world uh, there were there we had a church network and a pastor 's network and I mean it was just something that was ongoingly growing um, and so you know as the years went on, we really felt like we were operating on all cylinders. The work that God was doing was exhilarating it was exciting. Uh, I was writing a book a year at that time and traveling around. Uh, the country speaking at conferences and churches and events and colleges and all of that stuff. And uh, I was, in many ways, Brad, living the dream. Mm -hmm. Really. I really was. I mean, I had... Uh, lots of friends and an amazing network of people. Uh, all of the, uh, you know, all of the sort of big name Christian leaders were friends of mine. And, uh, you know, all of that stuff starts to make you feel important. And, um, and you know, I, w- I had financial freedom and security. And uh, I just had everything that you would think one would want to have in order to be happy and to feel successful and to feel like you matter and all of that stuff. And the danger in some of that is there's there's wonderful um there are wonderful benefits to things like that, but then there is also a great danger in things like that. I have mm. often sure. uh, reflected on the fact that uh, success is far more dangerous than failure. Yes, and uh, and the fact of the matter is that turned out to be true in my own life. Uh, you begin to believe your own press when when people's livelihood begins to depend on your success. Um, you know, your people aren't telling you the truth about yourself the way that they probably should, and even if they would, uh, or even if they should. I'm not sure that the person at the top is ready to hear that stuff. Hmm. Uh, and so there's this big sort of complexity of things that are going on when you are on the rise and headed to the top that are just unhealthy sure. across the board, unhealthy. And you have to be really, really on guard against uh, the subtleties of uh Creeping pride and greed, and um, all of those things that seem to sort of creep up uh, subtly. Mm-hmm. You know, these things don't come on like a sudden tidal wave, they come on like the creeping tide that happens so slowly and so subtly that you don't even really notice that it's happening. And then you wake up one day and go, How in the world did I get over here? Mm you know, from being over there. And so for me, it all came crashing down uh, in the spring and early summer of 2015. Two things that I thought were secure forever were were my uh, role as the senior pastor at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale and my 21-year marriage Uh, to my then-wife, Kim. Both came crashing down during that season uh, due to my own sin and selfishness. I was unfaithful to my wife, and all of that was exposed uh, in the early summer of 2015, and because I was a public figure, All of it went public because I came from a famous family. All of it went public very quickly, and it went viral, and uh, it was just plastered not only all over the internet, but in newspapers, uh, you know, everything from the USA Today to National Enquirer Mm. to People Magazine to – I mean, you name it. It was all over the place, and so – Uh, I was immediately thrust into uh, a whole new kind of limelight. And I was uh, embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was in shock. Uh, I was losing everything that I had seemingly overnight. Um, And uh, for a season after all of that, I got worse rather than better. When you, when you, and people, any listeners out there who have experienced any kind of personal crisis, uh, it could be a whole host of things, uh, they, they know that oftentimes things get worse before they get better, and when mm. you begin to feel a sense of cataclysmic loss, you begin to do everything you can to try and salvage whatever is possible. And uh, for me, trying to salvage everything that I loved and everything that I wanted and everything that I thought I needed meant that I was, you know, I was lying to people, I was manipulating the narrative, I was blame shifting, I was trying to paint myself as the victim, and all of that stuff to try to garner sympathy, because I knew that if I could convince people that I wasn't really the bad guy, maybe I could get some of my stuff back, whatever that stuff was. (laughs) Um, And so I was just... I was just in a free fall. I was really getting worse, not better, and uh, God just kept—he—he um, just—he just would not stop forcing me to bump up against brick walls. Every time I would try to resurrect something or salvage something that I had lost, He would not allow that to happen. He just kept putting obstacles in the way and. And at the time, I didn't understand why, and I I wasn't even really aware of the fact that that's what he was doing, but that is, in fact, what he was doing. And in any event, about a year after everything exploded, um, God really sort of put me in a corner and shut me up, and (laughs) that went on for about a year and a half. He kind of forced me into a metaphorical detox and rehab program by sending me uh, to to a rural area in Texas where my now wife, Stacy, and her whole family are from. Um, I met Stacy during the free fall season of Uh, The aftermath of everything that happened and uh, God provided her at a time when I desperately needed someone who was stable and someone who was sound and someone who loved God and loved me and who had been through a lot of her own stuff in her own life. So she had come out on the other side uh, wiser and more stable and she was a remarkable guide to me and it felt like at the time she was she was all that I had um and so anyway we lived in texas for about 14 or 15 months and it was during that time that i was alone with god for a majority of the day every day i had a couple of couple of close friends a good counselor my wife her family but ultimately my days were spent alone As my wife would get up and go to work and, uh, you know, I was in our little rental house in Willis, Texas uh, by myself and it was God and me. And he was systematically deconstructing me and forcing me to see my own sin and the root of it and really begin through the help of a couple of counselors, uh, trace it back to. Um, Just some core issues that I didn't even know I had in my life. And, uh, you know, in the process of deconstructing me, God was also setting me free and increasing in a very profound way my own self-awareness. And so I I arrived at the place where my sin against others grieved me and burdened me ten times more than others' sins against me. And uh, that release, or that ownership, was a huge release to me. It felt like a ton of bricks was falling off of my back. It was just exhausting trying to hold on to uh, bitterness and anger and just grief and you know guilt and all of that stuff. And so, so in any event, about after about fourteen months of being there. Um, we, through the help of a couple of friends, we were trying to think about where we wanted to go and what we wanted to do next. And uh, I had a friend, have a friend in uh, Fort Myers, Florida, which is where my wife and I currently live. He's a, he's a pastor in his early sixties. He pastors a small Lutheran church. I got to know him through the Liberate days. He would bring half of his church to Liberate every year. Mm-hmm. The conference that we would have every year in Fort Lauderdale and uh, he would just keep up with me and just let me know that he loved me and he was praying for me and we were on the phone one day in the spring of 2017 and he said, listen, I can't offer you a job because we have a small church and we have no money and uh, I'm a solo pastor but we can't offer you a church. If you and your wife would like to relocate here, we can offer you community, we can offer you a church, we can give you a place to heal and help you get back on your feet and just sort of be there for you guys and so uh, we made two exploratory trips here in the spring and early summer of 2017, and after the second trip, it became a very, very clear to us that this is where God wanted us to be. We didn't know what we were going to do here. We didn't know anybody here. Neither of sure. us had ever lived here. The only people we knew were these uh, new friends of ours that we were meeting through the church here in Fort Myers, and uh, and so we kind of came on a, on a wing and a prayer uh, <laughs> Labor Day weekend to Fort Myers, Florida. And we've been here for almost eight months now and have just thoroughly enjoyed it. We have become more rooted in the community and we have since met a lot more people. And uh, it's just been a real it's been a real uh, gift from God, this place and these people. And so right now I'm uh, I'm I'm sort of doing some odds and ends types things. I am doing some writing. Um, I have enjoyed uh, writing again. I launched a website back in October where I am just simply writing my own thoughts and reflections about everything that's gone on over the last three years inside of me and the, and the places where God's grace has met me in the dark corners of my life in loss, in grief, in shame, in regret, all of those deeply existential areas where God meets us. And you know, especially when we're at the bottom, and so I've been writing about that. Um, I have been doing some traveling and speaking and uh, which I've thoroughly enjoyed doing that, uh, recounting my story and and really doing my best to sort of steward all of that stuff uh, for the benefit of other people and I'm also doing some consulting, just some you know some pastors, people that i've known, people that I don't know, people who are Kind of in crisis or uh, getting ready to face a crisis or um, just need help kind of thinking through church stuff, church Mm. crises or leadership issues or structural issues, even things like, well, how do I preach a sermon? So I've been helping out some guys with that behind the scenes and have actually really enjoyed that. That's a very quiet one-on-one kind of ministry ministry that God has given me, and I have thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'm actually thinking about ways to kind of expand that because there's such a huge need out there. Mm. Um, And so those are the kinds of things I'm doing now. I don't really have any concrete clarity regarding, you know, what is the next thing, and the good news is I don't feel a ton of pressure to figure that out. I mean, I would like to know what the next (laughs) 10 years of my life is going to look like, and God has seen fit not to... Let me know those things, um, and that in and of itself has been uh, a bit of a struggle because I've always known what I've wanted to do, and mm. now I'm sort of you know 45 years old. I'm going okay. I've got to kind of start over, and um, I know that God can use me <laughs> to help other people in some way, shape, or form, and I'm beginning to discover what some of those things are. It all just looks so. Foreign and different to what I used to do. That mm-hmm. it's all you know. It's all brand new to me. But that's I know that's a very very long answer to a very very <laughs> big and general question you asked. But that's kind of uh, my entire life uh, in a nutshell. No, that
0: was that was perfect. I I appreciate your honesty, and I have to actually be honest with you because um, I remember you know back in the early part of 2015, I was l- listening to your sermons and your series, I think you had just started on uh, the book of Acts. Mm. And now I have to sort of, um, I hope I can do this with with your permission. I have to somewhat chuckle at the sort of ironic timing of all of it Mm. um, with the fact that uh, you were beginning the series, championing a message that said God loves bad people because bad people are all that there are. Mm. And then he sort of allowed your badness to be exposed and Mm. now I have to somewhat chuckle tragically at the timing of everything but I think what is most um, I think what through it all for me learning from you and your lows and your highs is the fact that that God is with you through all of it Uh, he Mm. never left your side and uh, I think you can speak to that very very adequately
1: Yeah, he, I mean, that's the thing. I, you know, I think it's, well, here's something that's even more ironic about uh, during that series on Acts, which was the last series I preached, ironically called Unstoppable. That Mm -hmm. was the name of the series. And that was the only series, sermon series that I've ever preached that abruptly stopped. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, it's ironic (laughs) that that was the name of the series and uh, it stopped. Anyway. Um, I, uh, I was listening, this is a couple years ago, I was listening to a portion of one of those sermons and uh, this was maybe six months after everything had happened and I said in one of the early sermons in that series uh, if your understanding of mm. the Christian life does not allow for the fact that your greatest failure may be in front of you, scrap it mm. and when I heard that knowing that that was, you know, months before everything uh, was going to sort of, you know, ex- be exposed. It was just chilling. It sent chills up mm. my spine. It really, really did. And um, inter- a- as it turns out, uh, my theological convictions have not changed one bit since all of this stuff happened. It has just strengthened my understanding of the radicality of sin and the serious consequences of sin the radicality of god's grace and the no condemnation nature of god's love uh if it were not for the sustaining grace of god coming through certain people at certain times i know for a fact that i would not be alive today physically Hmm. i was tempted on numerous occasions to take my own life when i was at my worst Uh, Which is just crazy because I've never been a depressed or despairing person. I've always been the kind of person who loves life. You know, I've always been an extrovert and a people person and someone who loves the sights and sounds and smells of life and all of its detail. And, um, you know, my life was uh, just covered in darkness and despair for quite some time. And death seemed preferable to life Mm. to me. At that time. um, And if it wasn't for the sustaining grace of God coming through certain people at certain times, I know I would not be alive. And so I can look back now three years later and go, I can chart God's uh, faithfulness Mm. over time. And I can see those places where he met me in some pretty profound ways. And all of those things have only endeared me to him. I think there is this misnomer that uh, when God reminds you of his unconditional love for you, when you are at your worst, that it's only going to encourage you to get worse. And to take Mm. advantage of his goodness. And the fact of the matter is, it actually has the opposite effect. When you come face to face with God's unconditional love for you and his smile towards you when you are at your worst... Uh, that actually makes you love Him more, not less. It endears you to Him. It makes you actually want to get better, not worse. It mm-hmm. makes you want to run from you from your sin, not towards it. <clears throat> and so I have found out that uh, it is existentially true that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. And that kindness of God oftentimes comes through uh, other people, And that was certainly true for me uh, in the case of my wife, Stacy, and in a few other people that have meant the world to me over the last three years. So his goodness is unmistakable. I think it's very important to remember that, um, you know, the hope of the Christian life is not great as my faithfulness. It is great as thy faithfulness, meaning God's faithfulness. And to be able to look back now and see God's tenderness and his care and his faithfulness in the face of my faithlessness has just calmed me and it's given me a peace and it's given me an affection for God and for other people that um, I may have had before in smaller doses, but it has just expanded Hmm. because of his love toward me. So it is true. First John is true. We love him because he he first first loved us, right? Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes. Well, and I remember, you know, listening to those sermons, and <laughs> I remember hearing that statement that you made, and it really struck me because I don't think I had ever thought about that before, um, and thought about the fact that, you know, perhaps your greatest failure and tragedy is ahead of you. And it immediately made me think of, you know, other men of the Bible, like uh, King David and um, such like that. You know, he's called a man after God's own heart after he has um, conspired to, to commit adultery and to get... a. An innocent man murdered right, um, which is an interesting resume for sure for a man of god um, <laughs> but it it's been exacerbated even more I think that idea that that truth um well, and I'm going to nerd out just a tad um because in the i don't know if you've seen it, perhaps you have I know you like movies, but um the latest Star Wars movie is perhaps one of my favorite, and I know that might be heretical to say, but um there was such an intriguing um, scene in that movie. Uh, the scene between, I'm going to spoil it for some people, between Luke and uh, Yoda. And he says in the movie that the greatest teacher failure is. And for me, I haven't been able to shake off that, that line, not because it's from Star Wars, but be just because it is so resoundingly true, um, even beyond the realm of Star Wars and in all of life. uh our failures can be some of the greatest teachers, Mm. and I think you can definitely testify to that, that in the midst of that failure, you've been able to learn perhaps, yes, more about yourself, but I would say even more, more about the God who is faithful in the midst of that failure. And I think that's just such a good testimony to the fact that (laughs) Hebrews 13.5, He will never leave us nor forsake us.
1: Mm. First of all, I concur with you that it was one of my favorite Star Wars movies. Mm. Second of all, I concur with you doubly that that was the best line in the movie. In yeah. fact, during the movie, and I never do this. I was afraid I was going to forget it during the movie. As soon as he said it, I looked at my wife with sort of this wide eyed and open mouth. And I tweeted that line Uh, in the
0: movie. (laughs) I was writing it down too. I want to forget it.
1: (laughs) I was so fearful. I was going to forget it. I'm like, I'm just going to tweet this right now. And so I pulled out my phone and I'm sure the people behind me were like, put that thing down, you idiot. Uh, But I tweeted it out because it was such a powerful line. And it's certainly the testimony of my life. You know, I, I think uh, that it is a shame, to be honest with you, Brad. I I, um, I think that, and well, let me put it this way: recovery institutions. When I think of, when I say recovery institutions, I'm thinking specifically of things like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or some of these recovery groups and ministries that have had such a profound effect on people. Um, they have, they have tapped into something that is universally true and all of us can testify to the fact that it's universally true in a variety of different ways, but they have tapped into the fact that the best kind of people to help others who have bottomed out is someone who has bottomed out. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, for instance, during the last three years, the people that have ministered to me in some of the most powerful ways through their own stories and testimonies are people who have been guilty of the things that I am guilty of, people who have experienced the things that I have experienced, uh, all of that stuff. I mean, people who have really, really been there, who when I share parts of my own struggle are able to empathize with me in a way that someone who hasn't actually experience those things is able to do. And so I was sharing this with a couple of people recently where I said, uh, the church, and I love the church. I love our local church, and I love the church universal. I mean, it is the the bride of Christ, and uh, I believe that it is the hope for the world. Uh, I, I'm not sure I can completely sign off on the way The church is uh, currently expressed uh, in all of its facets. But in terms of the church, the way Christ defines it, the way God defines it, I love the church. But at the same time, uh, today in our modern church, it is sad to me that the church is the only recovery institution in all of society that does not want former junkies leading the way. And I think that creates a real disconnect between uh, the leadership of the church and the people in the pew. And um, and I, I I've, as I have spent the last three years of my life outside of church leadership, and I've been forced to interact with people out there, people who don't go to church, people who aren't Christians, people who are so outside of the circles that I used to run in. And I've been listening to them and I've been spending time listening to their stories and listening to their struggles and listening to all of the stuff that goes on inside of them. Uh, It has really dawned on me that there seems to be, in many ways, a real disconnect between Uh, you know, church as it is currently expressed and the people outside the church who are experiencing the kinds of things that a broken people in a broken world with other broken people experience. And so I don't know what the answer to that is. I just know that for whatever reason, these other recovery institutions have really tapped into the brilliance and the effectiveness of uh, people standing up, for instance, and who have you know struggled with alcoholism their whole life, being able to reach people who are struggling with alcoholism. In the case of Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. in a way that someone who's never struggled with alcohol could never reach them. Sure, uh, and you know, and same with uh, Narcotics Anonymous, or you know, think about um, you know Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Who are the best people to lead that? In you know those sort of grief counseling recovery centers, uh, where people who have, in this case, you know, um, you know, mothers who have, who have lost children to drunk driving, who's the best people to reach them? Mothers who have lost children to drunk driving. So I just think that there is, in that regard, I think that there the, the deepest thing that sometimes is missing between the pulpit and the pew. Uh, is deep seated empathy, this mm. existential uh, gripping of, I absolutely know what it feels like to be where you are because I have been where you are. That creates a connection uh, that is otherworldly and mm. I think deeply effective. So I don't know what that means. I'm very grateful to go to a church where. Um, our pastor is incredibly and astutely aware of his own sin and his own heart uh, because he takes the law of God so seriously. He knows how far short he falls on a daily basis. And therefore he's able to preach both God's law and God's gospel to us in a way that is utterly liberating. And there is deep empathy in the things that he says because And you don't have to. I think some people misunderstand what I'm saying when I say this because they go, well, does that mean that in order to reach people who have had affairs, you have to have an affair or in order to reach? And I go, no, that's not precisely what I mean, although that has been helpful to me that, (laughs) you know, for a guy like me who committed adultery, it has been helpful for me to hear from other guys who have or women who have committed adultery and have come out on the other side to live, you know, to, to tell the story about it. So that has been helpful. But. At the same time, I think if we take Jesus' Sermon on the Mount seriously, which we should, anybody who is deeply attuned with the with the lust of their own heart uh, can empathize with mm. someone in my position. Or, um, you know, when Jesus likens anger and murder, he doesn't say the horizontal consequences of those things are the same. He just says that. Both are liable to judgment before God, that in the sight of God, those things are both falling short of the perfection that he demands. And so when someone takes God's law seriously and allows God's law to expose their sickness and their selfishness and their sin uh, and their badness and their brokenness, they are able to empathize with people and- in a way that uh, others who think that they're pulling it off just simply can't. Mm.
0: Yes, and I, I would I would like to. Um, I, th- I think you've written somewhere. You know, you talk about the grace of breaking of God breaking our legs and sort of talk about why it takes God breaking our legs in order for us to finally get sort of the. Wholeness, or and sort of sort of understand the fullness of what it means to (laughs) understand grace, because well, and I'll just say this too, because that event, you know, of of God breaking our legs, that sort of using that analogy, it's different for every person. You know, perhaps for you, it was a little bit more public than other people, but I think everyone in their life goes through something similar to that, and on a different scale. But uh, why would you say it takes God? God's hammer, so to speak, in order for us to finally get it.
1: Oh, gosh. Well, number one, because we have to remember that original sin at at its core uh, is you can be like God. Mm -hmm. That was the temptation in the Garden of Eden. Yes. And we desperately want to be the captain of our own ship. We desperately want to be in control. we want to play God by being our own God in so many different ways. they These are not just big, blatant ways; these are subtle, somewhat silent ways that creep in uh, and that flow out of us and so uh, I think god 's love for us is a setting free kind of love. In other words, God's love for us is shown in his commitment to set the captives free. And we are oftentimes enslaved to things that we are unaware that we're enslaved to. Hmm. Um, And so for instance, in my case, uh, the reason for me that things got worse rather than better Immediately following everything going public and being exposed is because I never realized how deeply dependent I had become on things like uh, me being the center of attention, me having the kind of friends that I had, me having the opportunities that I had, me having the financial stability that I had. I had so deeply attached my identity to all of these things that when those things were lost, I no longer knew who I was. I was 42 years old and facing a profound identity crisis because mm. so much of my worth and my value and my significance and so many things that made me feel like I mattered were now gone. And you don't really realize what you're depending on to make life worth living until those things are gone. Yes. And what that revealed to me was that I was deeply enslaved to those things. I was preaching freedom, but I was a profound slave mm-hmm. i was I was preaching grace, but I was living under the weight of my own law. I was preaching against performanceism while I was running on the performance treadmill mm-hmm. and and so I think God allows these things to happen uh, God cares a lot less about, you know, the fact that, you know, this is going to be embarrassing to me and this is going to be (laughs) be shameful to me and this is going to be, you know, he cares a lot less about that. What he cares about is us and he cares about setting us free no matter what it takes. He is committed to setting the captives free. Jesus tells us that in Luke 4. I have come to set the captives free, to liberate the oppressed. And oftentimes people read that politically and go, well, he's coming to you know, liberate politically oppressed people. No, he's coming to liberate our own self-oppression. The kind of oppression that we oppose, impose on ourselves by trying to, uh, you know, build our identity on things that we can control and things that we can do and things that we can achieve and who we can become and the way people think about us and all of this stuff. Um, I was telling someone recently that that there are two kinds of people in this world, narcissists who know it and narcissists who think that they're not, but there's no such thing as a non-narcissist. I mean, that is original. (laughs) sin you can be like god that Mm. is original sin um and so i think god is just so committed to setting us free from that kind of stuff because as i can now testify as free as i thought i was and as light as i thought my life was burden free in that regard i was actually heavily burdened by i was telling even my daughter the other day we spent a couple days together and I said, you know, I just—I always felt like I had to be smart. I always felt like I had to be on. I always felt like I had to say something insightful. I felt like my my next book had to be better than my last book. I felt like my next sermon had to be better than my last sermon. I mean, here I am, <laughs> literally preaching against performanceism, and like I said, I was running on a performance treadmill, and and the reason for that is because. I I was not guilty of preaching justification by works. Theologically, I was preaching justification by grace alone, but functionally, I was insanely guilty of believing in justification by works. I was doing what I was doing, and I was trying to achieve what I was trying to achieve because I desperately needed to justify my existence, mm. and um, and without accomplishing the things that I set out to accomplish, maybe my life would be meaningless. Maybe people would, I would become irrelevant. Maybe people uh, would forget me. Maybe they wouldn't think I was so smart. Maybe they didn't, they wouldn't think I was so insightful or so helpful or so, you know, eloquent or such such a good leader or whatever. And so I was competing with myself incessantly. And those are just the kinds of things that God uh, is absolutely committed to setting us free from. And so, why does God have to break our legs? Um, why does it take in some cases, uh, some really painful circumstances to open our eyes? Uh, because we're stubborn, sinful, um, people who, uh, will consistently go back to our own sinful patterns and God just persistently and patiently keeps setting us free. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I'm I'm very grateful for that. You know, nothing we do or fail to do will ever tempt God to leave us or forsake us, which is great news, mm. which means that he will be constantly committed to uh setting us free no matter where we go or what we do. He's never he's he's never uh going, "Okay, I've I've, I've worked with you now for two decades. I'm tired of this. You keep going back to the same crap. Uh I'm done with you." Like that's just other people will do that to you, to me, to everybody else, but God never does. And mm. that's that's really good news. It is good
0: news because <laughs> I could testify as well yeah. to the fact that, um, you know, in, in some translations of the Bible, the word patience is translated as long-suffering. And
1: <laughs> that's one of the that's things— gr- I know. Yeah, uh, it's great.
0: It's great, and it's also something that's been sort of on my mind lately, just the long-suffering of God— <laughs> just in the fact even of him allowing you to try your own way for a season or for a while. He, he, he's patient with us even in that. And then finally, like the prodigal son goes away. He's long suffering like that, that father of the prodigal. And, but when we're Mm. on our way back home, he, he kind of cuts off, cuts us off of the path and meets us, you know, with that, as you have written about many times, that one way love that just, hugs us and wraps its arms around us again. And Mm. that's just something that I've been thinking about a lot. Just um, even my own life, I'm grateful for God's patience with Mm. me and my stubbornness.
1: Yeah. I mean, where would we, where would any of us be without it? Mm. I mean, literally, I think, um, you know, I think to grasp that uh, oftentimes takes some real pain some real brokenness and bottoming out. I mean, I I think back to Job 42 where Job says, after losing everything, everything. You know, he says, before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Mm. And I keep going back to that and I think gosh, you know, um, Job went from hearing to seeing uh, via tragedy, via loss, via confusion and Pain and anger with god and others and really really wrestling with the grief and the mourning of uh having everything that he had predominantly built his life on taken away hmm. and uh and I just you know I think for for those of us who are human <laughs> uh, you know I mean it it oftentimes takes uh cataclysmic loss for us to recognize that we are not strong, we are in fact weak, we are not in control, uh, we are not good, we are in fact bad. Uh, those are all great realizations. It sounds you know daunting and depressing to say well, I'm not good, I'm bad but my goodness, that is so unbelievably liberating to not have to you know, sort of put up this facade that we're better than we are. It is the, the deep self-awareness, the liberating self-awareness that accompanies recognizing how needy we are, how desperate we are, how bad we are, is just so wonderful. I mean, it's absolutely wonderful. And I use that word on purpose. It is full of absolute wonder to think about God's love and grace in the face of my badness. God does not love us because we're good. Uh, We are good, meaning we are right standing with God because God loves us. And that is just such a remarkable uh, realization. It is Mm. liberating. It is freeing and it is humanizing. It actually, in a sense, rehumanizes us. Because we become more amazed by his grace, we become less shocked by sin, we expect broken people to do broken things, and so we, we, and we recognize our own brokenness in a profound way, so that when other people really screw up, we're not thinking to ourselves, oh my gosh, how could you do that? Because in some way, shape, or form, we think we are either incapable of doing that, or in a deeper sense, we've come to believe that we have never done that. Jesus made it clear we have broken all of the Ten Commandments, all of us, whether in thought, in word, or in deed. None Mm. of us are any better than any other people. We are all as bad as the person right next to us. And so, um, you know, it is is understandable that we use good judgment to evaluate right from wrong, good from bad, truth from falsehood, but exercising good judgment— um, and being judgmental are two very different things. Judgmentalism flows from this false idea that I am actually less guilty than you. And mm-hmm. that, is a, that is just so false. And so uh, the church, and Christians in particular, should be the first people rather than the last people on the face of this earth to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness. Uh, Because we are so aware of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness towards us. And oftentimes, sadly, at least according to the testimony of people that I talk to, the church is not the first place that does for people that do that. They're the last. Mm. um, You know, that's just somewhat oxymoronic to me. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) Yes. And it's sad, too,
0: because I think it stems from, I think you've written about it before, but I've also... Had my own come to my own understandings, and the fact that you know we view this Christian life specifically the doctrine of sanctification as if it 's like some video game leveling up, and like I have ten experience points and you have seven, so you have to get up on my level, mm. and I think that's yeah um, yeah one that's I false, know what, just because go ahead no 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 go ahead I was just going to say, well number one that 's false just because it has a wrong view of the way we are sanctified. But number two, um, it just creates this very sinister, evil sort of spiritual competition, which I think has really driven um, people the wrong way when it comes to Jesus in the gospel.
1: Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. It does. And I, you know, I, so funny, I, uh, I think it was my good friend David Zoll who said, Uh, A couple, a few years ago, he said, you know, most of us are three steps away from being tomorrow's headline (laughs) and all of us are on step two. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, it was just his way of saying, my goodness, people, if, if Buddy, if the whole world knew everything about you that God knows about you, they would run from you you would run to a secluded island and you wouldn't want to see anybody again. Everyone mm. would be so embarrassed and ashamed and exposed. And sometimes I think to myself, that would be the greatest thing that happened to the human race because <laughs> no one, uh, self-righteousness would go out the window. Okay? Mm. I mean, no one would feel like they have a leg up on anybody else. If everything we have ever done, said, fought, texted if our browser histories on all of our computers over the last 25 years every thought that went through our mind every conversation we had with our spouse every phone conversation we had with other people every email that was sent or received if everything inside and outside of us that is true of us for the entirety of our lives was put on display for the whole world to see uh nobody would be pointing the finger at anybody else. Mm. We would be so overwhelmed by our own shame and guilt and embarrassment uh, that we would be beating our chest saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we we wouldn't be spending our time confessing the sins of other people. We would be spending our time confessing our own sins. And I have told people even recently who have come to me in need of help because certain things have happened in their life. Uh, and they, in some cases, in some of these cases have felt really beat up by other Christians. And, uh, and I just say, listen, I mean, I, some of that's going to happen. And we are all broken, fallen, guilty people and broken, fallen, guilty people do broken, fallen, guilty things. And so we have to extend grace to people just the way we want people to extend grace to us. But I said the, the the people we should spend the least amount of time listening to or paying any attention to are the people who spend their time and energy confessing other people's sins rather than their own. Mm. I said that, is, that does not come – that just simply does not come from God. That, mm. The one sin that Jesus called out publicly are – the are the people who called other people's sins out publicly. <laughs> that was, that's the one, and so I just go, just don't, you know. That's that sort of got to be white noise. Listen to God, listen to the people closest to you, um, and you know, and and just sort of ignore the rest to the best of your ability. Sure, yeah,
0: uh, I, I uh, want to ask you this question as well because um, you know, just kind of reading some of your your pieces and um listening to some of your recent talks it's been interesting to hear the fact that i don't think your message has changed but i would like to ask you how do you feel or some of the ways that you personally have have
1: changed over the last three or so years that's That's a dangerous question because (laughs) the moment i acknowledge ways in which I've changed, it may reveal that I haven't changed very much. <laughs> yes, so, I remember that. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like the moment I say, here are the ways I've gotten better, it actually reveals that I've gotten worse because I'm aware of how I've gotten better and I'm probably somewhat proud of it. So, um, you know, I, I would say this, Brad, I can say this. Um, I am a different person than I was three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. Hmm. I am. You can't go through the kind of stuff uh, that I've been through. You can't be guilty of the kinds of things I'm guilty of. You can't lose the kinds of things I've lost. You can't uh, feel the kind of shame that I feel because of everything that's happened. I, you, you can't go through that kind of thing and come out the other side the same guy. Mm. You're either going to be a lot worse or, in, or you're going to be more self-aware. Yes. Uh, you're either gonna be, you're going to become more hard or you're going to become more soft. And so I am a different, I'm just a different guy um, than I was three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. But here's the interesting thing. I'm a different person, not because I have been trying to be a different person. Mm -hmm. I'm just a different person because God has changed me. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's just kind of, and, and, and so we can, you know, I know that back in the day in my former life, I was, you know, I would engage in uh, private and sometimes public theological debates regarding the doctrine of sanctification and <laughs> who does what in sanctification, and you know, is it our work? Is it God's work? Is it our work together with God? And you know, we can talk about those things theologically and theoretically all that we want. We can parse out Bible verses and exegete the passages all that we want. I can tell you. Regardless of any worthwhile theological discussion or, or debate that people can have about that very important subject, um, I am a different guy because God has done the work, Amen. period. I'm not a different guy because I have done the work. I'm not a different guy because I set out some, you know, list of goals that I wanted (laughs) to achieve uh, so that I could become a better person and be, you know, sort of put these other things away. I'm just I'm just a different guy because God has done the work. He has broken me. He has made me more self-aware. He has granted me the gift of repent. He's done it all. I mean, he's just done it all. And Mm. so I'm so incredibly grateful for that, um, that he has done the work, that his work in me is not dependent on my work. Mm. His work in me oftentimes overpowers my bad work uh and he is working in spite of me not because of me and um and so i just you know i don't i don't know all the ways that i'm i'm different i just know that i am i know that there is i've i've experienced the fruit of that difference so i'm just i don't feel as competitive i don't feel as ambitious i don't feel uh as um uh exhausted in so many different ways i i feel a deeper peace and a deeper stability than i have i'm much more content with simplicity than i used to be um i i i the people that are in my life physically matter to me much more than they used to. They certainly matter to me more than, uh, my virtual friends, my Twitter followers and my Facebook friends and my Instagram likes and all of that stuff. Uh, you know, whatever. I mean, those things became too important to me. Um, and so I just, I probably care a little bit less about what people think of me which I think is a good thing. I think when you care too much about what people think of you, you try to you live your life in image management mode. Hmm. Um, and so I, I I think all of those, so I'm experiencing a greater freedom than I used to experience. <clears throat> it's amazing to me that I, I find myself um, content with not knowing what the future holds. And uh, that would have never been okay with me before. Hmm. And I seem to be relatively okay with that you know i have my moments in my days where i'm like okay god please can you make something clear my gosh you're taking so long um (laughs) but on but on most days i'm you know in my gut i'm i'm content with that i'm okay with that i trust him more than i did i trust myself less and i trust him more (laughs) than i used to um and so i'm not as keen on taking matters into my own hands. Uh, I, I actually have more compassion, I think, for people who have blown it, uh, than I used to. My wife makes this great distinction between sympathy and empathy. And she said, you know, when I used to, I used to listen to your sermons and read your books and there was always a great sympathy for the sinner and for the sufferer and everything you wrote and everything that you would preach and say, she said, but now I listen to what you say and I see what you write and there's the sympathy is there, but there's something deeper. There's empathy because you've actually been there mm. and, uh, you can actually, you're actually relating to people in their worst moments because of the worst moments you've experienced yourself. And, mm. and so I, I, you know, I, if, if that is true, I'm grateful for that. Um, so, uh, I think those are just, you know, some of the ways that I have felt God's work in my life over the last mm. three years.
0: Mm that's really good that's a good perspective too um i wanted to ask you this as well because i think you would have a good perspective on this and that is the i think you've said before in an interview or somewhere that you know for all intents and purposes you were the quote-unquote celebrity pastor and I, I would i would agree with that in this and i hate that terminology me
1: too it's, me too hate it i hate it
0: <laughs> for all intents and purposes that's true i mean um What sort of advice, that's a bad word, but what sort of counsel would you give to those who are sort of idolizing celebrity pastors? And what I mean by that is, for many, I can testify myself that... um, in your quote-unquote heyday, I was very much changed by what you were preaching and the things that Liberate was promoting. Um, I was deeply, I'm deeply indebted still to some of the things that I, my eyes were open to, but I think there's a there's a deep fallacy when we associate that message to only a person, and then that's when we get into that idolization mode and i think that that is something that has sort of created quote-unquote celebrity pastors which is somewhat i think it's very i think it's very bad for uh christianity as a whole i would say
1: i absolutely agree with you um i would say that uh it's sort of hard to know what came first, the chicken or the egg. You know, (laughs) do people create celebrity pastors or do celebrity pastors create a celebrity culture? It's it's both and. I don't know what comes first. It's both and. They feed one another. It's all unhealthy, I think. Um, I mean, I don't think – I think that God raises certain people up to say certain things, and he gives certain people to say certain things that – uh, really do resonate and connect with masses of people. He gifts all people differently, and he's just gifted some people, uh, you know, immeasurably with the gift of communication. And uh, And I think it is very tempting to not only idolize the gifts that this person has, but to begin idolizing the person and wishing that we could do what they do. And we wish our churches were big like theirs. And we wish Mm. we were being invited to conferences like they are. And we (laughs) wish we were writing books like they do. And we wish that we were being interviewed like they are and all of that stuff. And I think that is much more revealing of our own heart than anything outside of us. Yeah. I think for me, I would stop and say, A, uh, I've been to the top and it's not as remarkable as you think it is. (laughs) It's just not, you know, it's just not, you, you, you sort of strive your whole life wanting to get to this certain place. Uh, and when you get there, you're like, okay, you know, this is not everything that I thought it would be, uh the one thing it does carry with it are temptations and challenges that you really don't want to have to face. Mm. Um, and, And I think that on the other hand, we go, gosh, I've really been changed by what this person has said, and I really want to do what they do and be like them. I don't think that's something we can avoid. I mean, I just think, man, we, we are, as John Calvin said, our hearts are idol-making factories. Yeah. And we take good things yeah. that God intends as gifts and we turn them into ultimate things that we begin uh, trying to emulate, that we begin worshiping. And so I do think it's more of an expose of our own hearts when we do that rather yes. than anything that goes on outside of us. Uh, But, you know, I I would say there is tremendous freedom in contentedness, Mm. tremendous freedom in being okay with whatever God has given you, whatever gifts he has given you. Uh, If you don't have the, you know, oratory skill of a Charles Spurgeon, so what? Like, that's fine. God has gifted you in ways that he did not gift someone like Charles Spurgeon. If you don't have the, uh, you know, the precision of insight that uh, certain people have or you don't have the look or the size church or the book deal or the speaking invitations, it's it's okay. Life is not found in those things. Hmm. Freedom is not gained by achieving those things. It just... Isn't. And I'm here to testify to the fact that uh, freedom and life is just simply not found in anything we can do, in anything we can accomplish, or in any yeah. kind of person that we can become. And I know that some people will hear this and go, uh, well, that sounds good, but I'm still going for it because it still seems to promise <laughs> so much. And, you know, I I sort of say, okay. well, then, you know, you may find out the same way I found out that freedom isn't found there. Uh, Mm. I feel more. I I don't have any money. I don't have a platform. I don't have I mean, everything that I had is gone and I actually feel more free and more human now than I ever had. And uh, and that's just something you don't trade for platforms and money and invitations. You just don't. Yeah. Yeah. so, anyway, those are, my, <laughs> those, those are my those are my those are my off the cuff thoughts about that.
0: <laughs> well, and I think that, um, and that's something that even I I will confess that I, I haven't been to seminary yet. That's something that I'm looking at doing. Not that it's super important, but I, I do want to have that accomplishment in my life. But I will say, having hung around many seminarians, that this is is somewhat of a message that I would love to to bring to a seminary is the fact that. Um, are you here in the seminary for the right reasons? Are you chasing a platform or are you really chasing after the message of grace? And I think for a lot of people, um, I have to, I have to say early in my sort of days when I was being changed by not just your message, but some of the people that you were connected with and something like that, I was surely, um, I felt those same sorts of feelings, you know, jealous for certain forms and everything. It was natural. But I think what, What freed me from that jealousy in some ways was the fact that I realized that one-way love isn't Tolian's message. This is God's message. And it's not something that I need to be jealous of. It's something that I can just gloriously promote wherever I am, whatever my context is. This is something that um, I don't have to... Um, have a platform for it. This is just something I get to share just because God has, you know, graciously uh, privileged me with a gospel ministry. And I think that's what's freeing and that's what's captivating is the fact that um, he frees us to preach that message, which is amazing.
1: (laughs) Uh, He really, really does. He frees frees us to revel in it Mm -hmm. and he frees us to preach it and to communicate it and to Extend it to the people in our lives, to our spouses, to our kids, to our friends, to our family, uh, to people who don't deserve it. And so I do. I mean, I think that's the that's sort of uh, in C.S. Lewis's words, the magic of it all.
0: Mm, yes. And
1: and so I, you know, I I don't know uh, where people are who are listening to this. I don't know if you know there are those people out there who are either experiencing a crisis right now or who will experience a crisis. We all will to one degree or another, or who have just come out of experiencing a crisis. I do know this. uh, And this is probably if, if anybody remembers anything that I say from this entire conversation, it would just simply be God is faithful. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He has given you everything you need to be alive, to be free. Uh, he, has, he has set you free already. It's just a matter of our growing awareness of that freedom that he mm. has already purchased for us and mm. our living into it and living out of it. Um, and so I just, you know, I, I hope that my, my story... You know the, the the it's it's sort of a it's it's a made for Hollywood kind of story, as silly as that sounds. I mean, it's you know, <laughs> sort of born into Christian royalty. The prodigal son goes off the deep end in his in his teenage years, comes back in his early twenties. God fast tracks him, and uh, you know he, he eventually rises to the top of. You know the the sort of the Christian world, so to speak, along with a handful of other people and and then he has this cataclysmic fall, and uh he be he gets worse before he gets better. God shuts him into a cave for you know eighteen months and he comes out sort of ragged and worn uh and a little bit more calm and ready to kind of <laughs> tell warn people and tell the story of uh the corruption of sin and the radicality of god's grace and And so I, you know, I go okay. I don't know. I don't know how God will use all of that to help someone or to help other people. I just hope and pray that He does.
0: Mm. And I think He He already has. um, I would say that for sure. Um, I'd also say that um, you know, in some of my ups and downs of life. the, the the thing that has sort of stayed me and kept me steady, uh, along with many other things, of course, but has been um, writing, and I would say that for you that I've appreciated your writing, and um, sort of talk about what comfort there is in the haven is of, of having a place where you can just sort
1: of spill your thoughts uh, on a page. Yeah, I mean, you know, some people can do that if they have a website other people can do that even if they have nothing but a pad of paper and a you know a pen or a pencil uh some you know i i process things outwardly Mm. Um I mean, I do process things inwardly, but for the most part, I process externally much better, whether it be conversation or writing or uh you know whatever the case may be i'm I'm an external processor, and so for me, writing has been a great outlet it just has been it's been a great way for me to uh formulate what God has done in my life, the feelings that I have had of guilt and shame and loss and regret, the way God has met me at the bottom, the way God has, uh, you know, has showered his love and grace on me at my worst and talking about all of those things that are very real and very existential. If there's anything that I would say that is different about my writing now than it was before is I just think it's more, it's more existential if that makes sense to people it's more um it's born out of a deeper experience of life and mm-hmm. therefore i think it has uh it has a more humane tone to it mm-hmm. than it than it has than it's had in the past uh, be, and some of that is just born out of my own <clears throat> deeper sense of self-awareness that god has forced on me as a result of all of this but writing has been an outlet for me it just has been it's not an outlet for everybody uh for some people you know that's just very daunting to think about actually writing things out it can be helpful you don't you don't have to write things out in order for anybody else to read Mm -hmm. write it out for yourself Um, you know just to help you process things uh, you know, do that I think it's it 's been helpful for me I think that 's why people throughout the ages have journaled not for necessarily publication but just for their own sake of uh healing and processing things and thinking things out loud and and all of that stuff so so writing I think on my website now what i 'm writing is um, is better in some cases than what i 've written before, at least in my opinion only because uh it 's It is uh, painfully transparent. Uh, It is not easy to write and put out there in the public uh, your own recounting of your worst moments, Hmm. and it's it's embarrassing. It is embarrassing, and I I cringe when I write some of the things I'm currently writing (laughs) because it's not. It's just it's hard to just say these things out loud. You know, to say I was unfaithful to my first wife. I went through a divorce. Here are the things that my children said to me when I told them that I was unfaithful to their mother. I mean, that's some painful, embarrassing, mm. shameful stuff. It just is. I. It's just embarrassing. And yet I know that transparency, to some degree, breeds transparency, and it sets other people free. If I'm brutally honest about my... Sin and my secrets and my shame and my guilt, that'll set other people free to be brutally honest about their. And that leads to healing and that ultimately leads to uh, grace.
0: Mm, Amen to that. Well, Talia, I've really appreciated our time together today. I I am very grateful for you and your friendship, and I am so thankful that you carved out the time for me. I'll sort of just let you have the last word. If there's anything else you would like our listeners to take away or uh, remember, uh, I'll I'll let you uh, have that platform to say that.
1: Well, goodness, I don't know if I have anything else to say. This has been such a rich, good, enjoyable, uh, fruitful conversation, at least for me. That uh, I don't know if I have anything else to add, except thank you for the opportunity to come on. Thank you for the invitation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I also appreciate your friendship. And you know, it's when you're at the top, it's hard to know who your friends are because you have so much to offer. Uh, but <laughs> when you are at the bottom and all you have to offer is liability and leprosy you you soon discover who your true friends are and so i i am greatly appreciative of your true friendship and thank you for uh your encouragement and your prayers along the way and yes. um and so i you know i look forward to seeing what god is going to do in your life you are newly ordained. And that's exciting for me and for all of those who love you. And uh, we pray God's best for you and pray that God's work of grace in you would flow through you to all of the people that he brings to you. So congratulations on your new season in life.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Tolian. And thanks again to Tolian for making the time to Come on the show today and just sit down and talk with me. I hope and I pray that you found this conversation a blessing. I know I did for sure. Make sure you read the blog notes for this show because there are just a ton of great resources for you to explore, so take advantage of that. And that's it for today's episode of Ministry Minded. I am so thankful for you for listening. If you like what you just heard, though, be sure and follow the show on Twitter. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes and on SoundCloud and on Google Play, and you also do that on YouTube as well. And if you're feeling really generous, really gracious, perhaps you can leave me a short review.